Thanks so much for listening in to the Saints Hill Church Podcast. Our vision is to see heaven come to earth, and we do this by equipping the saints to know who they are in Christ, to walk in freedom through the truth, and make disciples who change the world. We hope this message draws you further into relationship with our Father, and if you would like to give to the mission of Saints Hill, please visit our website at saintshill.church. And thank you. Your generosity helps to keep Saints Hill going. Now, on to the message. Luke chapter 10 is where we're going to be. We are in our Luke series that we have titled, The King is Here. So once you're at Luke 10, go ahead and stand for the reading of Scripture. All right, Luke 10, verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals and do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Stay there, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is offered to you. Heal those who are ill and tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town we wipe from our feet as a warning to you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you'll go down to Hades. Whoever listens to you, listens to me. But whoever rejects you, rejects me. But whoever rejects me, rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, and no one knows who the Father is except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then he turned to his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. 
For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. This is the word of the Lord. You can go ahead and grab a seat. I have, uh, you know, t- sometimes I have like a title to my sermon before I, uh, you know, get into the sermon. And other times, you know, I'll write the sermon and at the end of it, Hannah's like, what do you want the podcast to say? And I'm like, uh, I don't know. And we just pick up kind of a random name. This one has a title and this is the title, How to Be a Christian. Yeah, it's that basic, How to Be a Christian. Uh, and, it, and it's because in this story, we learn three things about Christians here. We learn what Christians expect, we learn what Christians do, and we learn how Christians define success, what Christians expect, what Christians do, and how they define success. So we're going to go through the story again a little bit with a more fine-tooth comb And we're going to work through each of these. So first, what Christians expect. Once again, look back down at your Bibles. Verse 1, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to go to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. For those of you who are somewhat new to the Jesus story, there are really three circles of discipleship that Jesus has. He has the three, Peter, James, and John, and that's kind of his inner circle. Uh, they, They see like the most intimate sides of Jesus. And then he has another circle called the 12, which Peter, James, and John are also a part of, but it's 12 disciples who become, you know, the 12 apostles of the church, really representing the new 12 tribes of Israel and the incorporation of the Gentiles. Into, into Israel, but then he has this outer circle, and the outer circle is the 72, and he sends the 72 people ahead of him to do ministry in the towns that he is about to visit. Now, from the get-go, Jesus is setting expectations for people who follow him. If you are a follower of Jesus, you should have expectations about life. There's some religions and some philosophies that would say, expect nothing and you'll never be disappointed. (laughs) Empty yourself of all passion and desire, and that's where true life is found. But for the Christian, it's different. We're to have expectations. And see, this line, pray for the harvesters, is interesting. It's interesting to me. The harvest is plentiful, Jesus says. So what you really need to pray for is you need to pray for harvesters. And that's interesting because it seems to me that many Western disciples of Jesus have bought into the feeling that the harvest isn't plentiful. So we don't pray for harvesters. We pray for a harvest. Have you ever noticed that? The sense is kind of like this. You know, the harvest really isn't there right now like it's been in the past, and there's this sense of nostalgia and and, and just a hang-in-there attitude, you know? It's like, remember the 90s? Those were fun. It's like, remember the Jesus People movie? Maybe you don't remember it, but at least you could watch this movie about it, and there's this sense of nostalgia for an easier time culturally when there seemed like there was a larger harvest, and, and, and this sense that I've kind of seen in the Western church has led to a lowering of expectations. Don't get your hopes up. I remember when, you know, we were thinking about planting this church. I, I met with different people who uh, had planted churches before, pastors, leaders that I really respected. And almost across the board, there was this sense of like, uh, hey, um, settle down. 
don't get your hopes up because it's just not, the, the harvest really isn't there. And I remember uh, when the Lord, it was this, and I use this uh, in all humility, but in truth, when the Lord spoke to us, plant a church in Newburgh, the next day, uh, my wife and I got on a plane and we flew down to Redding, uh, California to, to hang out with Jake and Becky. And I'll never forget it, on that plane, I was asking the Lord, you know, I'm so excited. I'm like, oh, we have a place. We're going to a place. Like, we, we, like, we got vision. And I was asking the Lord, like, what are you saying? What are you saying? And I just never forget him saying, get your hopes up. And you tell people in Newburgh, get their hopes up. See, if you don't have your hopes up, if you don't have your expectations where Jesus says to have your expectations, where there once was love and vision, there's now just discipline and perseverance. And I'm not saying those are good things. Discipline, perseverance should be a part of the Christian life, but Jesus said expect harvest and pray for harvesters. It is about looking at the world with hope even when it is a world of darkness. It is about having, dare I say, a Jesus mind. The kind of mind that looks at impossibilities and sees hope. The kind of mind that looks at a culture that is, seems to be going down the drain and says, he's coming for you. See, if we lower the bar of our expectations to what we've observed, we live in the past, and we no longer live in faith, and discipline becomes our only virtue rather than the fruitfulness that Jesus promised. There was this, like, move, like, about six, seven years ago, this, like, move within kind of the circles that I was running in at the time that was, like, be a faithful presence. Have you ever heard that language? Like, Christians, what are you supposed to do in a culture like this one that hates you? Just be a faithful presence. And I remember thinking, that's not what Jesus said to do. He said, be fruitful. Be a fruitful presence. Until you learn to live off of his expectations of the harvest, you will always live off and expect what has become normal around you culturally. And you were designed to do things that haven't been done yet. So I want to renew our minds for a moment. Can we do this? Uh, maybe take a picture of this one. Okay, the nations, at the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 10, the nations are given to the gods, to the fallen Elohim. If you don't believe me, you can check it out. It's called the Table of Nations. God gives over the nations to the gods. But Psalm 2 verse 8 says the nations are his inheritance. So though the nations have gone to other gods and worshiped other gods and given themselves to the gods of Babel, here's what the promise is. The nations are Christ's inheritance. Haggai uh, 2 verse 7 says that, that God is the desire of the nations, that actually within all of the nations and all of the people around the world, they really want him. And so Jesus, when he sends out his disciples, he says, go make disciples of all nations. Here's what it says in Isaiah chapter 43 verse 6 through 7. I love this. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. Every single person longs to be united with their creator. The purpose, the love, the mission, the safety that comes from that. All of your friends want it. All of your family members want it. They were designed for glory. 
And so you know what God says, go make disciples of all nations. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who I created for my glory to exist within my presence. Your doormate, they were designed for it. They were designed for his glory. Your coworker, they were designed for his glory. Your child was designed to exist in his presence. So we know that the nations desire God. They may not articulate it that way, but it's the des- he is the desire of the nations. So we say to Newburgh, we say to our areas of responsibility and influence, blind eyes be open. Maybe even just say that right now. Blind eyes be open. Newburgh, come back. Newburgh, come back. Come from afar. You were made. You are his inheritance. Just think of, think of that family member. Think of that coworker. Think of, of the neighborhood that you live in, your neighbors. And what I want you to say is, you were made for him. Say it. You were made for him. You were made for him. So, God, bring more harvesters to this town. Bring more harvesters to this town. Okay, secondly, we learn what Christians do. We learn what Christians do. Look back down at verse five. It says this, when you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Stay there, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is offered to you, heal those who are ill, and tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. I want you to see just how specific these instructions are. Two disciples of Jesus are sent out, and they are to bless right? Verse five, what does it say? First, say peace to this house. You're designed to bless. They are to fellowship. Look down, verse seven. Stay there eating and drinking whatever they give you, fellowship. You are to minister. Look down, verse nine. Heal those who are ill, and you are to proclaim. Uh, The kingdom of God has come near to you. You are to bless. You are to fellowship. You are to minister, and you are to Proclaim for every Christian, regardless of your personality, there is a way of Jesus, and it is to bless, to fellowship, to minister, and to proclaim. You know, about a year ago, I had this realization uh, that Jesus said, do what I do, and you will see what I saw. Do what I do, and you will see what I saw. And so I, I said to God, I said, okay, so why am I not seeing all that you saw? And he says, the problem is that you don't want to do all that I did. You want to do some of what I did. And if you do that, you won't see all that I saw. I think a lot of people, they see this and they go, okay, bless, fellowship, minister, proclaim. And they go, I love that blessing part. I can say peace to people, peace to you. How many of you guys understand it's actually a very powerful thing to use your voice in the way that God used his voice to create a world You were made in his image, and your very voice, when you speak something out, there is something attached to that. Your word can create a whole world for someone else to exist in. So to say a blessing, to say peace. I'll never forget it. I was at the Peterson's wedding. (laughs) Your dad. Uh, 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 Your dad got up, and he said this. He said, I'm going to ask all of heaven to bless my daughter and my, and my uh, son-in-law right here. And he said, he said, this is what blessing means. It means all of heaven, turn your attention towards this couple and pour out ability, pour out peace, pour out grace. They're not just words. 
you are giving a prophetic declaration that your intention as an imago Dei, as the image of God in his space, with that kind of authority, you're saying, I want blessing on this person. So I think a lot of us, we read this, we go, bless, I can bless. Our church especially, we're blessers. You're gonna get blessed, right? But I just don't, not, I don't really like that fellowship part. You don't know my neighbors. I don't like their food. <laughs> their kitchens are dirty. That's me. I can't eat from a dirty kitchen. I'm like, ooh, that's a dirty kitchen. I don't touch anything, Alex. That's what, my, that's what my senses are saying. I know, it's strange. Or, 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 you know, there's a lot of people that say, I love that fellowship part. But that proclamation part, it's just so divisive. It's just so divisive. Guys, if you want to see what he saw, you do what he did. So, next slide. We bless, we fellowship, we minister, we proclaim. Christians expect a harvest, and Christians, get this, lead with kindness. But it is kindness leading to repentance, like Paul spoke about in Romans chapter 2. Look, people must repent to be in the kingdom of God. You have to repent. Every human will be treated with the dignity of having their choices respected. So there must be a personal choice to choose God. I will honor your choices, so you must choose him. To choose humility before your creator. To need the blood of Jesus. But look what leads. It's bless, bless people, fellowship, eat with them. It's minister to them, pray for them. What are the issues of their life? What are the broken parts of their life? What are the things that need healing? Pray for it, and then it's proclaimed. And I think that this model that Jesus gives us in this passage helps us understand how to do ministry. You know, there's some uh, who struggle, mainly they're uh, pastors, uh, who struggle to find the right balance between grace and truth. Have you ever struggled with that? Like, Gosh, like, you know, I just feel like there needs to be a little bit more truth spoken here. Or, hey, you know, that's kind of divisive. Maybe could we have a little bit more grace, right? It's, it's what's the balance between grace and truth? And because there's been a misdefinition of what love is, truth is seen to be mean. You're being mean when you tell the truth. Look, a half gospel only half saves so I found this actually pretty helpful when I was reading this. Did you bless them? Okay, check. I blessed them. I used my language to proclaim God's favor and his goodness and kindness over their life. I blessed them. Okay, did you eat with them? Did you open up your life to them? Did you actually talk about things? Uh, did, you just, did, you, did you treat them as not a project, but actually a person that you're interested in doing life with? Did you pray for them? When there were issues of their life, did you not shy away and go like, oh, okay, I hope that gets solved? Or did you actually step in and go, okay, can I pray for this? I believe that God can do something about it. Okay, if you did those things, it's time to proclaim. It's time to tell the truth. To love is to tell the truth. You are an enemy of God, but you can be a child through the blood of Christ. That's the truth. You're an enemy of God. See, some, you know, I, I really think one of the big problems within the Western church today is that we are treating people who are enemies of God as though they're our friends. And we're trusting that just the common grace of being a good person is enough for them. It's not. It's not enough. It's not enough that your, that your neighbor who's far from God uh, cleans up their yard. That's not enough. They need to be redeemed. They need to be saved. 
And so if we were to be honest, we would treat people who are enemies of God like enemies of God. And do you know what you do for enemies of God? You bless. You're going to get tired of this. You fellowship, you minister, and you proclaim. I want to show you why this is so important. Right after this instruction, right after Jesus gives this instruction, he says this in verse 19. He says, I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. The word for power here, power of the enemy, is ability. So when you bless, you fellowship, you minister and proclaim, you are set up to overcome all of the ability of the enemy. You're going to see what he saw if you do what he, does, what he did. There is ministry that sets you up for spiritual breakthrough. Notice what Jesus says when the 72 realize that they have power. They're like, even demons are submitting to us. We, we, we bless people. We fellowshiped with them. We ministered. We proclaimed. And demons even listened to us. And Jesus says, yeah, no duh. I saw Satan fall like lightning. In other words, the spiritual climate has been changed, the gates of hell have been breached, and you are commissioned to plunder the city of death and open blind eyes. So what does it mean to be a Christian? What, is it, what, what do Christians do? They bless, they fellowship, they minister, and they proclaim. You know, the past couple of weeks I've been thinking about this message, and I just keep on hearing, we don't lose here. We're not going to lose here. So St. Hill, these are our marching orders, bless fellowship, minister, and proclaim. Now, this third lesson is quite important, and it's this. How do Christians define success? How do Christians define success? Look back down at verse 10. It says this, but when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into its streets and say, even the dust of, our, of your town we wipe from our feet as a warning to you, yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles were that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you'll go down to Hades. Whoever listens to you listens to me. Whoever rejects you rejects me, but whoever rejects me rejects him who sent me. Look, here's how we don't define success. Here's how we don't define success. Did I offend people? Then I must be failing. Are people's feelings hurt by the truth? Then I must be failing. People say mean things about me, and they're lying about me. I must be failing. No. Verse 10, once again, but when you enter a town and are not welcomed, Go into the streets and say, even the dust of your town, we wipe from our feet as a warning to you, yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. You do this. When you are rejected, when people say mean things about you, you go. Now, what is that? What is that? That's a prophetic act that Jesus calls judgment. Christians are supposed to judge when they have blessed. Here's the problem. We judge and we haven't done these things. But Christians are supposed to judge when we've blessed, fellowshiped, ministered, and proclaimed, and we are rejected. Then 
Okay. And what you are saying with that swipe, what you're saying with that swipe is you're on your own. I obeyed, I blessed you, I ate with you, I ministered to you, and now you have a choice. You have to stand before God. And the dust must be wiped because here's the key. Your response to me says nothing about me. Your response to me says nothing about me. Let's just say that together. Your response to me says nothing about me. My identity's settled. So there's some of you that you've been, you came into this gathering and you have been carrying the rejection of your coworkers. You've been carrying the rejection of your family. Here's what you need to do. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not joking. It's a prophetic act. We're gonna do it. You need to go like this. Just wipe it off. Wipe it off. Not for you to carry. Your rejection of me says nothing about me. It says nothing about me. You're on your own. You're gonna stand before God. In the same way that I'll stand before God, you'll stand before him as well. My identity is settled. Look back down, verse 19. Uh, Jesus says, I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Here's the lesson. This whole passage is teaching us this lesson. Don't measure your identity from a bad response from people. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't let their response give you an identity. But also, don't measure your success from a good response from the spiritual realm. Did you catch it? Don't rejoice. Okay, of course. Demons are going to bow to you because I saw Satan fall like lightning. But don't rejoice in that. Rejoice that your names are written in the book of life. In other words, find your joy in your connection to the one who is life. You know, some historians record that towns and Roman provinces had registers, books at the edge of their towns that listed everyone who was a citizen within that town who had the rights and the privileges of living in that town. So think about it. Don't be surprised that you're fruitful against Satan. That's normative for the believer. Rejoice and find your joy in belonging to heaven, having the rights and the privileges of being a citizen of heaven here on earth. And do you see what that does to your identity? When you really believe that, when you really get that, you may get traction in blessing, ministering, eating, and proclaiming. You may get traction or you may not. You may not. But your identity is settled and your success is simply in the co-laboring with Christ. You remember the parable that Jesus tells where all the workers get paid the same. It's not a lesson in socialism. When all the workers get paid the same, it's a lesson that the truest joy of life is getting to work alongside the vineyard owner. The work is the reward. Now, all week long, you know, I've been in this passage and... I have to be honest, it was somewhat uncomfortable because I began to see a gap. A gap between what Jesus called the church and what I have called the church. So I wanna do a little study on the nature of the church because I want you to see that when Jesus thought about the church, he didn't think about worship songs and announcements and a 30-minute theology talk. 
His version was this, baptize believers in communion together, sent into marketplaces and towns to bless, fellowship, minister, and proclaim. That was his version of church. But is that your version of church? Did you come to church today? I have to be honest because this, this is confronting me. The church was never meant to resemble a prisoner of war camp with an education program waiting for liberation to come someday while being entertained theologically until then. I'm not saying that's what we are, but, <laughs> but we could be. The church was never meant to resemble a prisoner of war camp with an education program, waiting for liberation to come someday while being entertained theologically until then. You know, Jesus only mentions the church three times. He only mentions the church three times. And when he did, he didn't talk about church planting. There's not a lot of instruction from him about church planting or about leadership development. He didn't talk about writing discipleship curriculum or running small groups. His focus was on the building of people who bless, fellowship, heal, and proclaim. The goal of Jesus was an internal rule set up in the hearts of those who need him so that they might become agents of heaven. He's after a people who are so full of love and resolved pain that they would be able to bring heaven crashing into earth outside of this building. Jesus was very specific in the way that he talked about the church. Here's a moment from Matthew 16 when Peter declares that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus says this, what about you? Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven, which is a good reminder for anybody who, uh, who only lives by their intellect. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now, the word for church here is ecclesia. Can you say that? Ecclesia. And it's an important Greek term. It uh, was a Greek term that referred to an assembly of citizens. Uh, kind of think like a town hall. That would have been an ecclesia, getting the, the town hall together. Or think of like a guild meeting, like we're the silversmiths and we're going to get together. In fact, when there's that riot in the city of Ephesus in Acts 19, and, and, and you know, the, the silversmiths get together, their guild gets together, and they're like, you're taking, a, you know, we need people to buy our Artemis statues. That's actually called an ecclesia. An ecclesia of the silversmiths got together, right? Okay, so now here's what's interesting. Jesus could have used the term temple, and I will build my temple. He could have used the term synagogue. I will build my synagogue. These were Jewish frameworks that already existed that he could have used, but he doesn't use those frameworks. He uses the term ecclesia. Why? Well, my opinion, this is my opinion, my opinion is that he was picking from their culture a model for the sort of cultural influence Christians are supposed to have. See, by naming his church ecclesia, he was making the claim that the church is not a destination that you drive to, but a flexible gathering of two or more Christians who bring heaven's rule in their spaces of authority. He's saying the church is not a destination that you drive to on a Sunday morning. It is a flexible gathering of two or more believers who bring heaven's rule into their space of authority. When that happens, ecclesia. 
When that happens, that's church. The church is like a town hall, like a gathering of individuals who strategize for cultural influence, not on behalf of a political party, but on behalf of peace, freedom, security, and identity, and salvation for the people of their town. And just like that, do you understand? Just like that, the church can happen anywhere. The church is in your home. Every home in Ecclesia, two or more believers gathered together so that their inhabitants of their town, their home, would have freedom, security, and identity, salvation. In workplaces, every workspace is kingdom space. At the park, in your public places where you spend time, the third spaces, as they've been called, the aim of Jesus' church was not Christian content or self-actualized believers or even people who are non-anxious. It's more than that. The aim for the people of God has always been to remodel their city. It has always been remodeling. So you thought that you just liked a good before and after HGTV show. No. It's in your spiritual DNA. It's in your spiritual DNA. Isaiah 58. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. The goal for the people of God, the goal for the church has always been the restoration of, the, of God's creation and their places of authority. And I just want to say, unless prophets and kings would be jealous of your power, your access, and your influence, we have yet to fully realize what is possible for people with names in the book of life who have an open heaven in their space of authority and influence. There is more for us here. You are, we are the ecclesia. And church happens outside of these four walls. Now, all of that might leave you with a question. It certainly left me with one. Uh, and it's important to be clear about, what is this? What, it, what are we doing here? What is this gathering? What is our staff? What is my job? Some of you are like, what is his job? Well, to be clear, this is not church. Your home is church. Your work is church. Your dorm is church. The grocery store is church. But this, what is this? This is celebration and equipping for church. This is celebration and equipping for church. Don't get me wrong. The apostles within the rest of the New Testament established an elder-led, deacon-served gathering of believers once a week to worship, teach, and pray. They established that. But what I want you to see is that just like Jesus sent out the 72, this church, Saints Hill, we are sending you out as well. See, here's the mission of Saints Hill. I'm not sure how many of you guys dig deep on the website to find this, but Saints Hill exists to equip the saints to know who they are in Christ, that's identity, to walk in freedom through the truth that's being set free in the places of pain, and to make disciples who change the world. This is success for us. Did we equip saints to know who they are in Christ, walk in freedom through the truth, the blood, the, the, the blood of Jesus, and make disciples who change the world? 
See, there is ministry for you to do, and we are not, are, are not successful until your identity is settled, you are blessing, fellowshipping, ministering, and proclaiming outside of this room. Then we're successful. We are not successful unless those things are happening. And what we call our gathering, our discipleship spaces that we organize and that we put money towards, like our St. Hill Book Club or like St. Hill Men and Women and our Young Adults Ministry, those are all equipping spaces. But I want to be clear, and this is what I want to be held to. I'm not giving you, like, hold us to this. They are only equipping spaces to the degree that they are encounter spaces. Here's what I mean. I don't know what your job is. I don't know what it means to be an ecclesia in your job. I don't know what that'll look like. You do. I don't know what your family needs in this season. I don't know who your friends are or what their journey has been. So what can I do? What can our elders do? What can our staff do? Well, God knows your work. God knows your home. God knows the complexities and the nuances relationally that you're working through. God has prepared in advance good work for you to do so that you disciple your realm of influence into the kingdom. So what I can do is provide an encounter. What we can do is to facilitate a space for heaven and earth to meet for God and humans to connect. Because it starts with encounter. You won't be a fountain. If you're like, I'm not a fountain. I'm not somebody who's gonna change my work. You don't have no idea what, well, you probably won't if that's where you're at. But you will if you come to him. You're gonna become a fountain if you come to the fountain. See, if my job as a pastor was to stay one step ahead of every person, I would fail. In fact, I did try, not at this church, but at another church. I tried to stay one step ahead. I tried to read everything that everybody had ever read. I was like, you know, if I heard about a New York Times op-ed that I hadn't read, I was, I was destroyed. I was like, I gotta read it real fast to know. What do they need to know? What do they need to know? And it wore me down so bad. It wasn't my burden to carry. But if the job of our elders, deacons, and staff is to provide an encounter with the one who does know, then you will be equipped. That is what this is. And that is our mission for you. So I'm going to commission you today. Let's go ahead and stand up. Okay, I just saw this uh, kind of like a prophetic act um, when I was preparing this. So we'll see how this goes. All right, uh, go ahead and grab the hand of the person next to you. Grab Grab hands with the people next to you. If you want to go across the aisles, you can. And here's what I want to do. I, want, I saw us commissioning every person as a minister. Do you see yourself that way? Every person a pastor. Every person a priest. And so I'm going to pray over you right now. God, I commission each person in this room as a minister of the gospel in their place of influence. I commission each person in this room, as the lead pastor of the spaces you've given them influence. In Jesus' name. Every home that is represented in this room, that's a church. Every home represented in this room, that's a church. Every dorm room represented in this room, that's a church. Every workplace represented in this room, that is kingdom space in the name of Jesus. So say this after me. My home is a church. My school is a church. My work is a church. So bring the harvesters, Lord. 
All right, let's pray. Thanks for listening. If we can do anything to help you, or if you want to stay in the loop with what is going on in and around the church, you can follow us on Instagram, download the Saints Hill app in the App Store, or visit our website.